This is Jonah chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, go, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from, and what is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? for the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that the great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to the dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not us upon us innocent blood for you O Lord have O Lord have done as it pleased you so they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights this is the word of the Lord Dean Sweeney, thank you for that kind introduction. Beeson family, thank you for how you welcome my family. Uh, it's an honor to be, uh, to be a part of you. And to my colleagues, and my, my friends, uh, it's really an honor of a lifetime to serve with you. I deeply admire you, have admired Beeson faculty for a long time. And to be able to, to be a part of this and to stand in the pulpit uh, this, this morning is humbling and I do so with great delight. I was planning a very, I was planning a Baptist sermon this morning as a Baptist all week, and then I found out last night that I was supposed to give an Anglican sermon. And if you're wondering what the difference is, it's about 20 minutes. But don't fear, I've had good practice in both. I might split the difference, though. I'll just warn you this morning. 
So we begin a new term with a familiar story. Jonah 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Perhaps, in fact, we know this story a little too well. Not only because we've heard countless times the story of a man who runs from God and gets swallowed by a big fish, but just maybe we also know this story too well because each of us as humans knows what it means to run from God. My family and I occasionally enjoy going to the Atlanta Braves games, and one of our highlights of the in-game experience is watching the freeze. Now, the freeze is this, uh, this character that comes out in the between-inning entertainment. Now, for those of you who haven't had the pleasure, the Braves place a normal fan at one of the foul poles and give them a head start, and then an extremely fast human being called the Freeze, who is, by the way, dressed up in a leotard and ski goggles, is unleashed to catch and pass the fan before they get to the other side of the outfield. Now, part of the amusement for my family, especially me and my son, is that as you watch this unfold, the fan, compared to the freeze, looks like he is running in slow motion. Of course, for the rest of us mere mortals, running a race against someone with Olympic speed, well, it makes winning hard. Yet there's no shortage of fans at the Braves game lining up to get their try. How much harder, in fact, how much more absurd is it to run away from an omniscient, omnipresent God? And yet there are no shortage of people trying. In fact, the human race has invented countless different ways to run. In some sense, our modern world has fueled an entire economy, creating diversions by which people flee from God. As Naomi Klein explains from her research on successful brands, humans instinctually seek community and narrative and transcendence. The most effective campaign, she says, seeks to convince us that we can get these things if we just go shopping again. Which means, from everything from hot tubs to hunting trips to 100-inch plasma televisions, we consumers know how to run and the, marketer, the marketers know how to cheer us on. Of course, there are also intellectual ways, more sophisticated ways to run from God. These are the insidious running techniques one typically needs seminary training for. One might spend their time running like the apostate pastor, scholar, and C.S. Lewis's great divorce, who is confronted by a spirit from heaven. The spirit, who was once a college friend of the pastor theologian, reminds him after all, that they were really just playing academic games all along. As he puts it, we simply found ourselves in contact with a certain current of ideas and plunged into it because it seemed modern and successful. So we just started automatically writing the kind of essays that, good, that got good marks and saying the kind of things that won applause. 
Confronted by the reality of heaven and hell, the Spirit calls him to repent and believe. And all the former preacher would do is say things like, extremely interesting. Certainly, it's a point of view. I'm perfectly ready to consider it, but you know I will need my free play of mind. There's a way to come to the book of Jonah this morning and read it as a point of view. An extremely interesting piece of ancient literature you might find yourself saying one day. Plunging into a modern mode that treats it as a dead book and performing a kind of academic autopsy on it. Standing over it, dissecting it, demanding your own free play of mind. And yet God will not remain silent. He speaks. This morning he is speaking through this ancient and yet living book. But to have ears to hear, you must be willing to give up the chase. You must give up your own free play of mind. Or you might run from the God of Jonah by outlining a kind of cultural analysis of why things are so bad, explaining why those people out there are ruining everything in our society, and then justifying your own flight from your own Nineveh. And so in the name of a certain social or political strategy, you run. In fact, Nineveh would be an extreme example of what some have started calling our culture today, a negative world, a society full of idolatry and violence and attitudes that pose a threat to the people of God. Nineveh was the capital of the Syrian Empire, which is not only known to be one of the cruelest ancient empires, it also posed a direct threat to Israel. It's not just that Jonah hated the Ninevites. Going to preach to them would have seemed like a losing cultural strategy. We can imagine Jonah saying something like this. Nineveh is a negative world. God, you have to pick sides. Are you for us, your chosen people, or are you for those pagans? This is how the world works. If those people people thrive, we will not survive. And it's this kind of zero-sum scarcity thinking, it's this kind of zero-sum scarcity thinking is what you get when you worship tribal gods of your own making. Chapter 4 of Jonah makes this clear. Jonah wanted a God that felt like him. He wanted a God that reflected his own vision of the world. He wanted his own little tribal God. And so when God wouldn't oblige, when, when God wouldn't allow Jonah's own free, of, free play of mind, Jonah runs. And no matter if you run by getting on a boat or you run from God by way of consumerism or by intellectual games, you will end up in the same place. By the time we arrive in chapter 2, we see where all of Jonah's running gets him. Look at chapter 2, verse 2, the belly of Sheol. Verse 3, the heart of the sea surrounded by the flood. Verse 5, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. Verse 6, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. In fact, since Jonah started running from God, Jonah has been on a descent into a shadowy underworld of the dead. Listen, starting back at chapter 1, and with the risk of sounding like your old undergraduate literature teacher, listen for the literary markers. Verse 3, 
chapter 1. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with him to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down. Jonah rose up against God, and rising up against God is always the way down. When we run from God's presence, we spiral down, becoming less alive, less human. We become zombie-like creatures, pulled in by a watery vortex that is spiraling down into the land of the dead. But there was another way. Jonah could have said, "Here here I am, Lord, I'll go. He could have risen up and gone. He could have headed straight for Nineveh. He could have crucified his false images of God. He could have let God be God. In some sense, the choice Jonah had to make is the choice each of us has to make. Either live to die or die to live. God wants to kill the inhuman parts, the self-centered parts that make us envious and miserable. He wants to kill the cancer of selfishness that festers in our souls. He wants to kill the imposter posing as the true you, the golem-like creature who wants to control and manipulate and rise up to be your own God. He wants to burn off the shell of metallic hardness so that you can truly taste and delight and feel. But that whole killing thing and burning part, that sounds scary, even painful, for it means giving up what we moderns love so much. It means giving up our desperate, anxious illusions of control. One of the problems is we know that if we give up control, or at least our illusions of control, it might just mean God will call us to Nineveh. So we run, we hide, we let ourselves be thrown overboard. And in fact, this is where we find Jonah in chapter 2. And by verse verse 6, Jonah is on the brink of being locked into a watery prison. But even here, of course, you can't actually run from God. You can't hide from God. And so in the last part of verse 6, we read, You brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. God in his mercy saves Jonah. And so Jonah gives thanks. In fact, he doesn't just give thanks. In stunning literary fashion, Jonah prays a prayer full of echoes and allusions to the Psalter. His poetic prayer is not only beautiful, it's theologically robust. Here's a man who knows how to pray. Look at chapter 2, verse 3. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. Now remember the story. Who cast him into the seas? Well, you might say the secondary cause were those pagans on the boat, but Jonah knows the primary cause was God. Jonah affirms God's sovereignty. Look at the next part of verse 3. And the flood surrounded me, all the waves and your billows passed over me. Jonah is waxing on. Even the sea and its waves are God's. Now here's a man who could have been a beast grad. He knows how to think theologically. He prays with the eloquence and cadence of the psalmist. Here's a man who knows how to give thanksgiving. In fact, this prayer mirrors the many prayers of the righteous sufferers we see in the psalms. You know the psalms where the writer laments, but also praises God for vindicating him? 
that his, just, his cause was just. But hang on just a minute. In chapter 2, is Jonah actually vindicated by God? Is this a moment of vindication? Now, I need to confess that Old Testament scholars are divided, and I'm sure uh, Mark Genelette can clear anything up here that I mess up. But they're divided on exactly how to take this prayer. But as I see it, Jonah's offering what I would call the right prayer at the wrong time. After all, was Jonah a righteous sufferer? Had he been vindicated by God? Look at verse 4. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Now remember, Jonah wasn't driven away from God's sight. He ran away. In fact, where in this prayer does Jonah explicitly take responsibility for what happened? Where does he confess his sin? Where in this prayer does he repent? Oh, he is no doubt thankful, as he should have been. Yet it is one thing for us to be thankful for blessings. It is another thing to die to self and repent. But still, having said that, I need to confess, I have a soft spot for Jonah. For I find it much easier to give thanks rather than to confess my own sin. In fact, I'm much better at analyzing your sin than my own sin. I find it much easier to reflect on the culture's idolatry rather than my own. Apparently, Jonah has this same problem. In fact, the only time he mentions sin in this prayer, it isn't his own. Look at verse 8. Those who repay, those who pay regard to vain idols, forsake their hope of steadfast love. The prophet who ran from God, who hasn't yet in this prayer expressed repentance, is now praying about the sin of those pagans out there. Do you know those pagans? Like those sailors in chapter 1 who were urging Jonah to pray to his God? Those pagan sailors who called out and sacrificed to the Lord back when Jonah, the prophet of God, refused those pagans. And yet now, with great eloquence, he dares to contrast himself with the pagans, telling God what he will do. What God had told them to do was go to Nineveh. And yet there is no indication that Jonah is setting his sights there. Now, this helps us understand why Jonah responds with such anger to the Lord's saving mercy in chapter 4. Jonah wanted mercy, but he didn't want to give mercy. He wanted God's blessing, but he didn't want to be a blessing to the nation. The people of Israel needed Jonah's story. Like King David needed Nathan to confront him with a story and then lift up a mirror and say, you are that man. Israel needed this story. Israel had been called out not only to receive God's blessing, but to be a blessing to the nations. But amid the cultural pressures, amidst their own negative world, driven by their own fears and their own idols, they ran from God's calling. And thereby, and thereby they ran from God. And so we too need Jonah's story today. We have to ask that same question. Are you that man? Are you Jonah? Are we Jonah? 
we who have received the blessing are called to be a blessing to the nations. You who have received God's mercy have been called to give God's mercy. Don't allow the news or the internet or the blogosphere turn you into Jonah. They'll keep trying. There's too much money to be had. There's too many votes to be gained by stoking anger and resentment and fear. Before fanning the flame, which after all is our theme this year, but before fanning the flame, we, need, we should ask ourselves, what flame are we fanning in our own hearts? What, what flame are we fanning in the hearts of those we're ministering to? Don't forget this gospel thing is about faith, hope, and love. Yes, the gospel demands that we offer a radical challenge to the false idols of our culture, but it also demands that we offer radical grace. The Jews demand a sign and Greeks seek wisdom, as Paul puts it, but we preach Christ crucified. That is the radical challenge to cultural idols. But then Paul adds, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. By God's grace in Christ, we offer the wisdom and power that every human longs for. And yes, the call of the kingdom is to repent and believe, but that starts with us pulling the planks out of our own eyes. Now, my guess is everyone in this room knows how the story ends. You know how the final two chapters go. Jonah preaches to the Ninevites. They repent, and Jonah sulks in his own bitter resentment. Jonah, the fully orthodox, we might say, poet, prophet, theologian, ran from grace. And by the end of the book, he is the one miserable and alone. While the pagan sinners feast on God's forgiveness, Jonah is the elder son who refuses to join the party. In fact, the last words we hear from him in this story is his bitter response to God. Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. But Jonah's tribal self-righteousness, as it turns out, is not just his problem. It is our problem, too. It is my problem. I feel it in my bones. I felt it in my bones this morning stuck in traffic. What's the matter with those people who can't drive? I feel it. We feel it in our workplaces. What's the matter with those people? If I was only in charge. We feel it as we look at the, the, the polarization in our country and we say the problem is, are those people. Those people are ruining everything. See, the self-righteous attitude isn't simply Jonah's problem. It is the human problem. And here's the thing. If you allow it to fester, it will lead to a shadowy underworld of resentment. You will not only drown in your own self-pity, you will not only despise others, you will be robbed of true joy. But once you see the problem... Once you admit you feel that in your own bones, what do you do? Look at the last line of verse 9. Salvation belongs to the Lord. This verse is saying more than I think Jonah actually knows. For on one hand, Jonah is thankful to God for saving his life. But on the other hand, he hasn't yet embraced the scandalous mercy of God. 
But once you read the whole book and then you come back to verse 9 and verse nine and see it in light of the whole story, I think it stands as the theological center of the book. And if you take the medicine of this truth, it will begin to melt the hardened self-righteousness that threatens to calcify over your heart. For if salvation belongs to God, that means salvation is not something you merit. And if you don't earn it, then you don't get to decide who else is worthy of it. For what do you have that you have not received? There are in the end only two options. You run or you receive. There are a million ways to run, but they all end in death. There's a million ways to flee, but there's only one way to receive. The good news is that while we were running away, someone greater than Jonah has run to us. Oh yes, you were running. We were all running. But at just the right time, Christ ran us down. The Son of Man has run to the heart of the earth, and he will carry us home. The Son of Man rose from the belly of Sheol so we can go to our Nineveh's in joy. Chapter 2, verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. In God's grace, Jonah was swallowed up by a fish. And by God's grace, the fish vomits Jonah out on mission. Remember, no matter how theologically sophisticated you become, no matter how eloquently you learn to pray, no matter how many degrees you end up with, God uses us, vomited sinful people to accomplish his work. But why? Why call Jonah to preach? He's a stubborn, self-righteous, bitter man. Why Jonah? But then again, if we're going to ask that question, we should, we've, we've got to come back and ask the question, why call us? Why call you? Why call me? And I have to confess I don't fully know. But if the prophet Jonah had anything to do with passing down this story, as I believe he did, then we have at least a partial answer. Because this would mean that in the end, Jonah stopped running from grace. And when we stop running from grace and instead we receive God's grace, we become people who find joy in telling others about the God who sees us who always sees us, who's always there, and who sees us in our filth, who sees you in your fear, who sees you this morning, and he loves you. And he has run to you as a father runs to his son. It's in our Nineveh. It's in our mission to our own negative worlds that God chisels away at our hard hearts. It's in his killing our false images of him and, and in our dying to our own best thinking that God turns vomited rebels into the beauty and goodness that shines in the darkness. Like Jonah, we must descend to the dead, but do not fear. Christ has already beat us there. Christ has already run the race, and with Christ we too shall rise 
and receive the crown.